Welcome to FEPS Talks, a podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, this is FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies, FEPS, uh, which is located in Brussels. And we have been running this series for about one year. And today I have the pleasure to welcome Seth Harris, who is an American, and he was acting Secretary of Labor in the administration of Barack Obama. Previously, he was Deputy Secretary of Labor. And today, he's a visiting professor at Cornell University at the Institute for Public Affairs. Professor Harris, welcome to the program. It's really a pleasure to have you because the whole world is watching the United States. And from my perspective, it's very important to find out about the experience of the United States with employment policy during the coronavirus crisis, because this has been a major shock in the whole world. And uh, we remember in March when there were weeks when uh, several million people were added to the list of unemployed. And obviously in no country this would be an easy task to tackle. But the United States is supposed to be a strong economy, a wealthy uh, society. What is your assessment about uh, the U.S. administration confronting this unprecedented challenge? Well, first, let me say how delighted I am to be participating in the podcast, and thank you for welcoming me. I look forward to having the opportunity to return to Europe as soon as uh, Americans are permitted to do so. The, the United States government policy response to the steep decline in employment was actually surprisingly rapid and surprisingly innovative, um, although the credit, frankly, goes Uh, to the Democrats in the United States Congress rather than to President Trump and his administration. You know, we suffered, as you described, we suffered a very steep employment decline from the second week of March through the end of April, lost more than 20 million jobs in essentially six weeks, an unprecedentedly fast uh, job loss, uh, a climb in the unemployment rolls, that is unprecedented. Um, you have to go back to the Great Depression of the 1930s to see a higher unemployment rate. And so it was a monumental jobs crisis in the United States. And the, the United States Congress responded, driven by the Democrats in Congress, to do a number of things that uh, were uh, really quite innovative. First, they did something that has been done before, which was to extend unemployment benefits. In the United States, and most, first of all, unemployment insurance in the United States is a state-federal partnership with states determining eligibility rules and also the duration of unemployment benefits. In most states, the duration of unemployment benefits is 26 weeks. So Congress added an additional 13 weeks to states' unemployment benefits. But the innovation came in two ways. One, they increased the amount of unemployment benefits by $600 per week. Unemployment benefits in the United States, on average, are less than half of the pre-unemployment weekly wage, weekly income of the unemployed worker. And so and the purpose behind that is to create an incentive for people to get back to work. But in an economy that's lost 
20, more than 20 million jobs, there's no job to go back to for most people. So the idea was to plus up, increase unemployment benefits so people could support themselves at something approaching or even exceeding 100% of their pre-unemployment benefit. The second significant innovation was to expand the eligibility for unemployment benefits and to allow people who are independent contractors, self-employed people to be able to apply for unemployment benefits, if, frankly, for the first time in the U.S. unemployment benefit systems, 80 years of existence, 85 years or so of existence. Um, and there were some problems with implementation because it essentially states were required to stand up a whole new system immediately and millions and millions of people have applied into that system but it's provided absolutely critical support not only to those families but to the economy as a whole in addition the congress did something it's done before which is to provide loan and grant facilities to small businesses and to other sectors of the economy but they conditioned the receipt of those funds for small businesses and also for the airline industry among others on retaining employees. They had to keep their employees employed. That money had to be used to keep people from going on to the unemployment rolls, which frankly kept many, many, many millions of Americans from increasing the number of people who are unemployed in the unemployment rate, we almost certainly would have exceeded Great Depression unemployment levels. So those responses also increasing uh, support for uh, food uh, insecure families and uh, cash payments to families, another innovation uh, from the Great Recession era, from the Recovery Act era of President Obama that was repeated here. Just a lot of, I thought, smart responses. Now, the problem is that money's run out and Congress has not renewed that spending in any of these areas. And so what we're seeing is a slow, excruciating descent into poverty for 8 million additional Americans. A couple of studies have just shown we're going to start seeing people... We've already seen people thrown off of small business loans uh, or running out of money in their small business loans. The airlines are no longer keeping their employees uh, on the payroll. And we are sliding towards an end to both the extended unemployment benefits, and we've already seen an end to the supplemental unemployment benefits. All of that is causing our economy to slow again. It's causing unemployment to at least flatten and maybe rise again. We're seeing an increase in the number of people applying for unemployment benefits. It is, frankly, as stupid an economic approach as you can take in a time when what we really need is public investment and recovery. Right. I'm glad you started with the question of unemployment benefits, because um if I remember the previous crisis correctly, we looked at the United States with kind of a bit of envy, uh, since in the European Union, at the level of the Union, there is practically no uh, solidarity in the form of unemployment insurance or reinsurance. So we actually launched um, a lot of studies to explore whether it is possible or not, and I think uh, it should be. Uh, on the other hand, I think it's not only Europe that could learn from the United States, for example, uh, the federal unemployment insurance, but um, the U.S. can also learn from Europe, for example, the short-time work arrangements, which have been so successful in Germany, Austria, and a few other countries. May I simplify the question? Is it known at all? Is it used at all in the United States, or is it just small scale? and not really dominating the employment strategy? Uh, well, this uh, sh short-time work arrangements, uh, sort of shared work arrangements, 
was an innovation of the Great Recession under the Obama administration. It was included in the Recovery Act, and and a very sizable number of states allow short-time work arrangements, basically job sharing, so people can be remain employed, but they're employed at a lower level, and the unemployment benefits make up the difference in their wages. But the take-up rate has been surprisingly low in the United States. Um, Mm. States have been slow to implement it. Employers are hesitant to use it. Um, We have seen several hundred thousand people using short-time work arrangements in the United States. But when you have now 25 million people receiving some kind of unemployment benefit, It's really shocking that we have such a small number of people on short-time work arrangements. I'll be honest that I'm not exactly sure why that has not been an effective public policy response. Frankly, this administration, uh, the Trump administration, has not aggressively advocated for short-time work arrangements, and worker advocates have, but there's a lot of resistance. I just think it is not a part of the culture of how employers work with their employees here. You know, the United States, quite different from Europe, uh, certainly Central and Western Europe, uh, has an at-will employment relationship where workers are sadly treated as as rather disposable, um, mm-hmm. that if you don't need them, you just let them go. And if you, if you want to hire them, you bring them back or you bring somebody else back. And that, that creates an immense amount of fluidity and flexibility in the workforce. But it also means that it's extremely painful for workers when there's an economic downturn or any kind of a dislocation, even if you don't have a macroeconomic downturn. If you have a regional downturn or if a particular business gets into trouble, workers are, are, are dispensed with much, much, much too quickly. Um, and in Europe, you have uh, guardrails to protect against that. And I know that that's controversial in some parts of Europe because the suggestion is that it makes it expensive to hire. But here we're seeing the cost of very easy discharge, very easy layoff. And I fear that that the short-time work arrangements, the part-time work arrangements are a victim of that disposable worker mentality that we have in the United States. You mentioned that at the beginning of the crisis, more innovation was observed than one could have expected. And that's um, a positive uh, development. Um, I think the same would apply to the UK as well, the United Kingdom, where the furlough system was used uh, much more extensively. And the wage subsidies also at a higher level than uh, in recent memory, I would say. Um, but when um, the generosity runs out, when the governments feel a kind of fiscal crunch, and they start to scale back, of course, um, the social, but probably also political risk is increasing. And it's always the case with mass unemployment. Mass unemployment can only contribute to political instability, if not unrest. Do you see dynamics like this? Oh, there's no question that we are seeing that in the United States right now. Um, The good news is that the push for austerity which we're seeing from some members of the Republican Party in the United States Senate, happens to be occurring right at the time that we are having our federal elections, mm-hmm. right? So what's intriguing is that you know a, a typical politician's response to an election is to give out support to the people who will be voting for them so mm-hmm. that those people will be happy with the incumbent and reelect them. But the Republican Party has uh, taken a really surprising uh, approach, which is that they're not going to support 
unemployed workers, food insecure workers, small businesses. They're going to let that money run out and they don't want to spend any more sort of the the failed austerity strategy that frankly strangled the recovery in the United States, or at least slowed the recovery in the United States, and I think had negative effects in Europe as well. The idea that in a slow recovery or a recession, that the solution is to spend less rather than more when you have a deficit in demand is an utterly failed economic strategy. It's been proven time and time again. So I think what we're going to see in the United States is an election that is going to quite resoundingly reject Mm-hmm. that kind of austerity economics and austerity politics. Now, of course, it's all intertwined with a pandemic, which mm-hmm. has been horribly mismanaged in the United States and mm-hmm. has led not merely to catastrophic economic consequences for millions and millions of Americans, but has also led to 216,000 Americans dying, 8 million, almost 8 million Americans being infected, and no sign of improvement at all. In fact, we're now looking at a third peak of infections and cases in the United States. So I, we're about to see, I think, a an utter re- rejection, an utter repudiation mm-hmm. of the austerity economics and failed public health strategy of one party and the commitment of the other party to a much, much more progressive vision with respect to economic growth, Mm -hmm. with respect to jobs, with respect to uh, equity, particularly racial equity in the United States, and a much more aggressive attack on the pandemic itself. Um, Would you agree, or it's an exaggeration, that um, rolling back the healthcare reform of the Obama administration might have also contributed to the lack of resilience, the weakness of uh, the U.S. uh, healthcare system, its performance uh, against the pandemic? Well, I want to be careful to not overstate what the Trump administration has been able to do with respect to Obamacare. They they tried to repeal it. They famously failed. Um, And so Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act still exists. And there are still millions and millions of Americans who are particularly those who are on Medicaid who are getting their health care because the Affordable Care Act was enacted. Now, the Trump administration has succeeded through regulatory means and moving money around in curtailing the Mm -hmm. scope of the Affordable Care Act. And that has certainly done damage. Um, It is leaving millions of Americans with unexpectedly huge um, medical bills that they can't afford to pay. And I think it's also created a mentality that has has suggested that the United States is not committed to the, the health care of its people. There's been no alternative proposed for the Affordable Care Act from the right. There have been alternatives proposed mm-hmm. from the left that would look more like a social democratic response that you might find in Europe, a universal Mm -hmm. government-run health insurance system. I think Mm -hmm. we're going to end up with an expansion of the Affordable Care Act if if Vice President Biden is elected. But I think it has changed the mentality of Mm -hmm. a lot of the government um, rather than promoting health care and health insurance and particularly preventive health care. There's now a cost factor that has been problematic. I would also say that uh, one, one of the challenges that we have in the United States is a very sizable portion of our health care provision system is losing huge amounts of money because the things that they allowed them to make money, the kinds of particularly elective surgeries, but other kinds of health care that people sought in non-pandemic times sort of disappeared or declined dramatically during the pandemic 
simply because the hospitals either were overwhelmed or people were fearful about putting themselves into a setting where they might be exposed to COVID. So the, the entire U.S. healthcare system has been significantly pressured by the pandemic. And the question is, how, how will we recover from that? Mm-hmm. Um, so it might be the case that for, let's say, the average Republicans, the Obama reform in healthcare was too much. But in reality, it was far from sufficient uh, to create a real safety net for the big majority of the population, especially because of growing inequalities. And also because even if there is a recovery, the job creation might not be so dynamic to create good quality, well-paid jobs uh, for people to return to stability from a material point of view. Um, but I suppose that in a hypothetical case, uh, there's a change of government, probably another health reform would not be sufficient. So you would, you would need to name at least one or two more reforms which would add more safety nets or more types of intervention that help people either to uh, you know, financial stability or better position in the labor market. What would that be? What would be your favorite reform? Well, I, I, I think what we will see if, if the Democrats uh, get control of the federal government, I think what we, we will see is an expansion of the Affordable Care Act that will consist of several parts. One will be the availability of a public Medicare-like option that will allow people who are unable to afford uh, private insurance on the Obamacare exchanges around the country to either opt in or to be automatically placed in this Medicare-like option with very, very, very low cost and low deductibles. So that will significantly expand coverage, particularly among lower and middle class uh, families, lower income and middle income families. The second expansion would be to drop the age of Medicare and the United States Medicare eligibility, uh, which is the uh, the health insurance system for seniors in our country, uh, now you become eligible at age 65. And the, there are proposals ranging from age 55 to age 60, with or without certain kinds of triggers. That would significantly expand health insurance in the United States, particularly for the population of people who are most likely to be in need of health insurance. Uh, you know, as, as we age, and I'm, I'm experiencing this because I am aging into that group now, your consumption of health insurance and the cost of your health insurance um, and your health care, I should say, tends to expand. And so your need for health insurance increases as well. And then the, one of the biggest problems in the United States is the really extraordinary price gouging that occurs in the from the pharmaceutical industry. Americans pay really obscene uh, expenses to get their prescription drugs. So an ex- a quite aggressive approach to bring down the price of prescription drugs in the United States will make a tremendous difference with respect to the cost of health care. And I would also add one thing. We're seeing some innovations that I think also will help to both expand health care coverage and also improve it. And you know, so that w- one of the things that the pandemic has helped to grow dramatically in the United States is telemedicine. And I think we're going to see meaningful expansion in both telemedicine and also home-based health care with home health aides and other provisions of home health in the home rather than in some kind of an institutional setting like mm-hmm. a hospital or a nursing home. I think that will help both to bring down the cost and expand coverage uh, for health care. Um, 
So I think that all of those things together will get us closer to universal coverage in the United States, and that's certainly the goal. Is this not surrounded by suspicion that the U.S. would be copying other countries, that something un-American would happen in the United States or to the American society, which is a kind of old tune whenever some kind of significant welfare reform uh, would be proposed or promoted? Yes, that's the old xenophobic uh, trope here in the United States that we wouldn't we wouldn't want to be Europe for goodness sakes, and uh, I think that that or or anybody else or Canada, as though Canada is a country inhabited by little green hostile men with ray guns. It is a small fringe view in the United States that sadly has taken over one of our mm. political parties. This uh, know nothing xenophobic approach to successful experiments or successful programs that are no longer experiments, but are just policy in other countries, um, we have a lot to learn. Now, you know, some European countries are different from the United States uh, with respect to health and uh, the diversity of your populations and age distributions and industrial uh, and occupational distribution. There are differences, but you In thinking about models that have worked in other parts of the world, you have to take those differences into account, take the lessons that are valuable lessons, and put aside the lessons that may not apply. Um, so yes, we're gonna we we always hear that argument, and it's mm -hmm. it's never the right argument. I my hope is that we're gonna get past it this time and open our eyes rather than closing our eyes, ears, and mouths. Uh, perhaps a very last question, um, which is also about the international dimension. I think it's important uh, to acknowledge that we have a lot to learn from each other, uh, but also to work together in multilateral organizations. Um, I think we also saw in this uh, recent crisis a lot of uh, uh, suspicion of hostility against multilateral institutions. Uh, They're probably not perfect, but the role of the World Health Organization, the international labor organizations, and you could continue, um, is probably very important, if not indispensable, to foster uh, the necessary global cooperation from which, you know, we, we could all benefit. What do you think about that? Well, so I, I, I want to acknowledge that there is a not insubstantial uh, well of hostility and suspicion among American workers about U.S. engagement in multilateral organizations, and not just in multilateral organizations, but in the entire global trade regime, particularly the global economic mm -hmm. regime. And one of the sources of that skepticism, and in some cases hostility, is that there is a strong sense that U.S. workers' economic interests have been subordinate to national security and foreign policy priorities mm. in the way some governments of both parties have dealt with those institutions and with bilateral uh, trade relationships. And, you know, there are across the United States, not just families, but entire communities that have been devastated by the loss of uh, middle wage, middle skill jobs, good quality jobs, many of them unionized jobs, that have been, frankly, exported to other countries 
uh, to the detriment of working families in the United States. And so there is a deep well of concern that those people have been left behind and forgotten. In fact, that concern, to some extent, fueled Donald Trump when he ran for president in 2016. Uh, now, he presented grossly oversimplified, xenophobic, often racist arguments, but he drew upon that healthy skepticism and hostility that was in large parts of the American electorate um, who feel like they are being cheated by their mm -hmm. own government. And so while I agree with you that there's immense value in multilateralism and in many multilateral organizations. For example, I'm a tremendous supporter of the International Labor Organization. I'm a big fan of Guy Ryder, the director general of, of the ILO. And I've, I've had the privilege myself of participating in uh, labor ministerial meetings, both with respect to the G20 and a Western Hemispheric meeting of uh, American labor ministers. But the any approach to a multilateralism by a U.S. president and a U.S. policy apparatus must take into account that American interests and American workers' interests in particular need to be foremost in that effort, that they can't be sacrificed to the exigencies of uh, trade policy, national security parties, policy, foreign policy. Those things have to work together. Um, so I'm not an advocate of blind protectionism, you know, silly uh, jingoism. Um, but, you know, the American president needs to not merely stand up for a world order that is rules based and fair. But the American president also has to stand up for American workers in that system. And so I think that will be an interesting turn in the way both parties have approached these strategies. Now, sadly, the principal voice for that kind of an approach, our current president, has been laughably incompetent and ham-handed in the way that he's put forward strategies and policies. Um, but the hope is that with a pro-worker, pro-labor democratic president, that you will see that balance struck in a more sophisticated, nuanced, intelligent way that not only appeals to American working class voters, but actually serves the interests of American working class voters, as well as the interests of our allies and a fair rules-based order in the world. Thank you very much for uh, this uh, critical analysis. I think uh, the way you describe the need for a balanced approach between um, international orientation and the importance of paying attention to the needs and the interests of uh, communities in our own countries and um, working people who have to make ends meet and, um, and endeavor in um, improving their living and working conditions. Um, I think this is um, an ambition which we share. And uh, we believe we have a lot to learn from this um, uh, transatlantic dialogue of progressives. Um, I thank you for your time. And um, we believe that for our audience in uh, Europe, um, to understand the political developments in the US, it's very, very important to see uh, you know, how the labor markets developed, what was the health uh, policy crisis, uh, 
and crisis response in um, uh, 2020 and uh, and use this um, knowledge um, to uh, to see how uh, the political developments unfold in the coming weeks so thanks so much for um, uh, this analysis and um, i hope that we will have other opportunities also in the future from to to benefit from your company okay, well thank you very much it was a privilege thank you for having me thanks a lot and i thank our audience uh, also for listening this was fab stalks and please also find us on social media, including Twitter and many others. Bye-bye. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag Talks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.